0: You are listening to CFRU 93.3 FM in the Royal City. Welcome to Open Sources Guelph. My name is Scotty Hertz. Open Sources is a weekly news, politics, and current events show here on CFRU 93.3 FM, campus and community radio at the University of Guelph. We're continuing our 10-year retrospective this week with a pair of interviews from 2023 that we thought deserved an encore presentation. Last fall, Adam A. Donaldson spoke to Craig Pickthorn of the Kitchener-based Ontario Living Wage Network. They're a network of employers, employees, nonprofits, profits researchers, and proponents of decent work standards for all Ontario workers. The living wage reflects what people need to earn to cover their actual cost of living in their community. The network's goal is to change the conversation about what the minimum standard of pay for low-wage workers should be in the province. This interview first aired on October 5th, 2023.
1: Okay, uh, Craig Pickthorn. Thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here. First, uh, in, in case people have heard the term, um, perhaps perhaps don't know the, the the considerations that go into it. How do how like what is a living wage, and how do you determine what a living wage is um, for for a given area?
2: Sure. So what we do is we look at all the um, necessary expenses that a worker would have to cover. In their community obviously the large ones are shelter costs rent uh you know transportation child care and food we also look at things that i'm sure we can agree are essential too like high-speed internet access and a mobile data plan and uh you know a very modest vacation um non-ohip medical like prescriptions and things like that then we also uh take a look at any applicable taxes transfers and benefits from all levels of government and so what you get at the end is an hourly wage that an worker must earn in order to make ends meet where they live mm-hmm. and for Guelph uh it's $19.95 and we calculated and released that last november
1: right and and j- this is something i was thinking about today you guys refresh those numbers every 2 years or is it a yearly thing now
2: Every uh, every year. It's every first Monday okay. of November, every year, we release 10 new living
1: wage rates for the entire province. And then you bunch them together by region so people know. So there's like Toronto, the GTA, Yeah, Guelph, Kitchener area, London area, Windsor-Essex area, Northern Ontario. So those are That's just right. the ones I remember off the top of my head. Um, so there's a new, new um, living wage uh, coming up at the end of this month, beginning of next month. Uh, I don't know if you want to give away any spoilers, but you know, uh, up or down. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's it's going up. They always go up. They're going up this year, um, in all regions. Some more than others, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, they're they're all going up. So they, and you know, our certified employers anticipate this as well. They know that they're going up. They do get a bit of a notice as to how much, and uh, then they have a period of time uh, to actually implement those changes in their payroll in order to maintain certification with us. But they almost always do. We've lost very few employees over the, over the years to, you know, hey, this increase is just too much. I can't handle it. That's pretty rare.
1: That was actually one of the questions I I had. Um, But along with that too is, and I'm going to throw a couple of talking points at you that uh, I hear in in some of the other coverage about minimum wage and and living wage. Um, And that is that it, puts too much stress on small businesses in particular um, to keep up, like the idea of implementing a, a universal living wage, like making the minimum wage, a, a living wage puts too much pressure on small businesses to, um, I, I guess on, on their budgets to, it has an effect on their back ends. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been hearing that um,
2: all through the years before the pandemic, during the pandemic. Uh, we've heard it uh, ever since I've been doing this job since 2016. So it's always been the case that it's too much and too soon uh, when you're talking about increases to the those that are earning the the legal minimum, the, the 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 least you could pay someone whilst still not breaking the law. Um, you know that's always been the narrative around there. To that, I would say, well, we have in the province now almost 900. Uh, workplaces that are certified living wage, which means that they pay all their workers at least a current minimum or current living wage for their region. Mm -hmm. They're doing just fine. And some of them have come to us over the course of the pandemic. And some of them come to us from sectors that, you know, typically rely on minimum wage work, like, um, you know, the service industry, uh, restaurants, uh, cleaners, security guards, these are you know you you typically see a lot of minimum wage work in these sectors and they're doing just fine in fact one cleaning company that's certified with us they are expanding all throughout the province now so really this is a there's another way there are employers that are listed on our website at ontariolivingwage.ca uh, are showing that there's a, a different way to go about business that doesn't just look at workers as a cost to be controlled rather they're a part of the business's success.
1: And the, the reverse is also true to an extent as well that it, it people, we, we kind of focus on those upfront costs that you, instead of you were paying, just to pull numbers out of my head, you were paying uh, somebody $16 an hour. Now you're paying them $17 an hour. But there are cost benefits on the back end because if you're paying somebody a living wage, um, they're more more likely to stick around because they are making a good, decent wage. Um, As opposed to, you know, someone who feels like they can move around and look for a better deal, Um, you know, because, you know, having to hire people, train people, lose people and then hire someone else and then train them, that costs money as well. Sure, yeah.
2: Uh, Look upon it as an accountant would Yeah. and then go, well, what's the real cost of this increase Uh, when you factor in the reduced uh, recruitment costs, which... Is a challenge now. Uh, the mm. the the in the decrease in turnover, which also costs in productivity and training time. There's costs associated with paying someone minimum wage, and our employers report to us that they um, you know experience some of these benefits um, by paying a living wage for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. The other telling point I want to address, and I, I did hear it on the weekend when uh, Ontario and a couple other provinces uh, had it. Uh, minimum wage increases over the weekend. Um, The effect on inflation that we're paying people more. So there's more money out there, more money, uh, you know, the more spending there is, the higher the inflation goes. Uh, How about, you know, putting our high inflation rates on the the heads of workers? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. A lot of the
2: impacts are not distributed evenly across Societies, And so the things that go up in price are not things that people who are in working poverty are buying, um, or, or they are rather, and people who are doing well off are not purchasing the things, the prices that are, are skyrocketing. No, no wealthy person has to deal with, uh, an, an increase in a, a rent at a, um, uh, a, 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 a place where there's no rent control because it's right. a building that was built after in 2018 or whatever that thing is that was supposed to create more affordable housing for us yeah so you know it's certainly not distributed evenly across the wage spectrum or income spectrum i should say
1: right um and i would say like these talking points are still out there but i i will say and perhaps you can confirm this just you know from my own anecdotal observations it seems to be happening less and less i remember the the big um minimum wage hikes i think it was in 2014 2015 and those were accompanied by a lot of stories about oh my god you know stores are going to be boarded up people are going to be like go uh, because places can't that obviously never materialized there wasn't like a recession because we were increasing the minimum wage by a couple of dollars does it feel like to you that you know that that's a message that's getting out you're having to swat like less and less of these sort of you know economic concerns that you know we kind of get hammered over the head with when people get paid more. Yeah, I th-
2: I think so. It's hard sometimes it's hard to to tell exactly, but um yeah, like when maybe not because I remember having discussions <laughs> over living wage week which is which is when we release new living wage rates and when the uh, the minimum wage now goes up every year on October 1st. And so we usually get a call um you know just <laughs> Call or two to talk about the difference between the minimum wage and living wage, and yeah, you know what? We do have to remind people that uh, hey, it's been studied as well, and it, you know they they looked at the increase to fifteen dollars in uh, twenty eighteen, and they studied well what happened to employment numbers. They actually went up by two point eight percent the next year. Mm. There was no suppression of 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 jobs number of jobs available. Uh, there was there was you know, the the number of people working went up. Mm -hmm.
1: And what about from the, oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: No, that's that's it. Okay.
1: (laughs) Because I was going to ask about from the other side of this, which is the government side, because it does feel like, I mean, we're not at a living wage yet in terms of, you know, measuring the minimum wage, but the fact that we now have like the yearly increases, it has been going up, you know, the last several years, not necessarily on a yearly basis, but it has been going up. Perhaps it's not as fast as, we would like, but there does seem to be a general acknowledgement on the government side that there's a gap here that needs to be closed.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the intent of the bill was to really, it goes back to uh, bill 148 from the wind government. And they said, go from 1140 to 15 immediately. So close that distance. That was the largest minimum wage increase uh, in history. And so close that gap immediately, and then start tacking on the increases um, every year tied to inflation in some way. But of course, that didn't happen on the time frame that they wanted. And it was repealed by uh, the current government, right. but they did eventually go to 15 begrudgingly in, uh, was that 2021? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you're just playing this game of catch up now so that you have this condition where it's hard to imagine that in the current scheme of things that You'd close in the distance, the gap. Say in Guelph is four dollars and thirty-five cents, right. even after the increase from um, you know just uh, this Sunday past to sixteen dollars and fifty-five cents. That's still you're still short by one hundred fifty-two dollars a week in being able to pay your bills and make ends meet. So I think there's you know there's work to be done um, on advocating government, but that's not really our role. We work right. with employers, and we certify them, and we calculate living wage rates. But you know, there's other tools that the government has at their disposal. Um, you know, what if they what if they got in stronger rent control? The single biggest, right. as you can imagine, thing in our living wage calculation is is shelter costs. And you know, there's a lot of folks that live in a, a rental unit that has been occupied uh, after 2017 or whatever that threshold is. And that means that it they can just raise the rent by any amount year over year. And you know, mm-hmm. so that's we're seeing especially in city centers, we're seeing our, our shelter costs um just skyrocket. And governments have a have the ability to to do something about that. You know, there was a there was a a few years back the uh, Ontario government introduced uh child care subsidy mm-hmm. and it really it brought down our child care costs in our calculations. So where it would norm it would have gone up by X amount of, you know, whatever that year, our living wage rates were were more modest in a way because of that child care subsidy. We right. do an average of three different family types for that reason, including a single person with no children. So that for that reason the childcare doesn't factor in as much as shelter because that's what everybody needs and food. But you know, it's just an example of of things that governments can do to um tackle working poverty and make things a little bit more affordable.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that's outside your brief and, you know, I'm thinking about like ODSP rates and, and Ontario work rates, which are even further below sure. um, the, the living wage, you know, benchmark than the minimum wage, you know, that's, and that's, again, that's not something that's inside your area of, of coverage, yeah. but I mean, it absolutely affects people the same. Um, Looking at it this way, um, and people may, you know, people can go to the website and look up the map and things. Um, people may be living in London, the London area where I think it's 1805 presently and the Winder Chatham Kent Essex area where it's like 1815 and then, you know, look at Guelph where it's 1955 and then look to Toronto where it's, you know, over $23. And so the question is, you know, we know about the migration sort sort of from the greater Toronto area you know, westward and eastward as, you know, people are, you know, looking for affordability. Um, is that like migration in terms of the living wage? Is that something that you you also see as as you're looking at this year over year that, you know, yeah, the, the, the living wage in London is 1805, but it could be 1995, like next year or the year after?
2: It's hard to predict because we're, what we do is we're looking at a lot of numbers that mm-hmm. are from the previous year. We have a. We show our work. You can, you know, uh, go to our website. There's a documentation tab there. You can see exactly how we get our numbers. Some of those numbers, like shelter and uh, what's called a market basket measure from Statistics Canada, are really from 20, like we're going to release 2023 20, living wage rates, but the numbers are from 2022, mm. and that's just sort of a, a consequence of using statistical tools like that. Um, you can't just go out and you know measure the cost of grapefruits in all supermarkets in in the <laughs> province, right? So, you know, th- I guess to answer that, like, where's it? How do we predict? Our 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 prediction model is is uh, already one year behind, right? Uh, so we 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 do what we can. We're certainly better than uh, the politically set minimum wage, but um, you know there are tools there. There are tools that are uh, better at at doing calculating you know the the specific uh cost of living in in population centers uh that are that are done specifically for that reason mm-hmm. whereas our living wage is really a tool to combat working poverty that employers can use
1: right it you almost it almost sounds like you're saying you know you're the the work you're doing is kind of a lagging indicator in terms of where the economy is going that by the time you you've like determined where the living wage is for, for this calendar year, it's, you know, I don't want to say it, it's out of date, but you know, that is, that feels kind of like what you're saying. It's you yeah. Know, no, it's a, totally a, absolutely.
2: It's a lagging <laughs> indicator. We collect a uh, um, childcare information the same year. Uh, some other things like uh cell phone and internet plans are collected over the summer. Uh, but those really are, they don't they don't factor in as much nearly as much as as uh, the shelter costs food and uh transportation right. transportation is is not uh too out of date um but it still relies on some t- statistical uh tools as well so
1: mm-hmm. um again not to get into spoilers but um can you talk a bit about some of the pressures that are on the living wage as, you, as you, you're kind of finalizing your calculations this year? You know, what are, what are oh, kind ye- of the sore spots? Oh, the sore spots? Yeah.
2: Are uh, shelter, shelter, and shelter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, food is, uh, food is, I shouldn't say that like so glibly. Food is a, yeah. um, a factor as well, food affordability. But shelter costs are like the biggest cost that anybody has to face in the province. And right. when they balloon up like that, they really affect the the rates.
1: Right. And um, I mean, that affects all types of, you know, housing situations because, you know, costs get passed on to renters as well. If, you know, interest yeah. rates go up and yeah, it's, I guess, are there any kind of static costs? Like things that are sort of, you know, people are assured that, Although maybe they're seeing increases on the food side or the shelter side, but like other costs aren't hitting them as hard. Because of the subsidy,
2: uh for when there's childcare available, because we don't right. look at that, right? There's child care right. deserts. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't make much sense to, you know, we we understand that's a blind spot of ours. Yeah. But the the uh, childcare costs have have stabilized uh, in part because of that childcare subsidy. Mm-hmm. Um, internet and, uh, data and just tech access, like uh, streaming and, um, uh, you know, having a cell plan and having a uh, home internet access have kind of stabilized year over year. Um, hmm. they're, they're really high in the North, right. um, but that's, they've stayed high. They stayed where they are up North and they've stayed more or less across the province. Um, so those are the, those are the stable things, but they don't really you know, they, they they account for like less than five percent of of uh, maybe ten percent of each individual individual living wage rate.
1: Right. It's, it's kind of a reminder there of um how big uh, some of our costs are in terms of taken out of the total budget. Yeah. Looking looking at this from the other side, from from the the side of you know businesses looking to be a, a living wage employer, you said that you've actually seen a lot of people hop on during the pandemic, and I think there's been sort of this tail that the the pandemic's been a drag on on the economy and a, a drag on you know the bottom line and and you know helping people you know make a living wage but um like any crisis there's also been opportunity in the crisis too it sounds like you're saying
2: I think that uh, well it's true we have uh, we went into the pandemic with about 200 or so employers and we're now sitting at 622 Mm-hmm. with about 900 certified workplaces so you know like meridian credit union has 90 plus branches so we count that too <laughs> and uh yeah. and uh, so there there's you know there's there there has been an uptick and there has been um i think of a, a change a bit in, in in where people's heads are at with regards to low income work Hmm. And this idea, well, it's an unskilled job, so right. you're just a teenager, you know, that has changed. I think to go back to your earlier question, I guess sometimes it can be hard for me to see that change when I'm in it trying to answer these questions uh, to various, um, you know, fine outlets. But I think, yeah, there, there has been a shift and uh, that people people just, it's it's uh, there's a new thing that uh, employers report back to us. About hey, what's the benefit? You've been a certified living wage employer for a year. What what have you noticed? Unprompted, they're starting to return with answers like, "Well, we enjoy better standing in the community. You know, people people like that we're a certified living wage employer. They they like right. to, you know, they can go to our website at Livingwage.ca and hit the hit the directory and then go near me. You know, find find a certified living wage bar or restaurant or coffee shop to to patron. Patronize, And so I think people are are starting to think about work along those lines, which we're happy about.
1: Yeah, that's such an important point that I've talked a lot about looking at labor issues that, you know, there used to be once upon a time where you would leave your high school. You'd walk down the street to the factory, get on the line, be paid a, a, a living wage, what we would now call a living wage and be part of the middle class in three or four years and buy your own home and start a family and all that. Um, the quote-unquote unskilled labor, though, that didn't disappear. It went all went to the service industry, where we've sort of classically undervalued labor—things like stocking the shelves, waiting tables, cooking, doing the dishes. Um, and it, it seems like, from, from what you're describing, there is kind of this reevaluation of of work and the type of work people do that's helping to drive people to commit to your program. Yeah, not nearly fast enough, unfortunately. Nearly, <laughs> yeah. But we're getting there. <laughs> well, can you talk a bit about the process of how, you know, maybe someone's listening and and are curious about how they can, you know, uh be part of the certified living wage program, how they can be a, a certified employer, you know, how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So,
2: for example, just uh, over this summer, an employer came to us.
1: Uh
2: it's what are they Oh yeah, the city of uh Waterloo. The entire <laughs> city decided to become a certified <laughs> living wage employer. Uh, They raised the pay of a whole slew of uh, seasonal and part-time and contract workers. Um, So how did that happen? They they come to us, OntarioLivingWage.ca, certify, you click on certify. Uh, You sign a little form and then we get back to you. We usually have a phone interview of some kind. Uh, We talk about what the, the program entails. Also on that page, by the way, is an employer handbook. You can read all about the different provisions of our program what the requirements are and what you can expect from us uh, they uh you know they they tell us that they, they are interested in certification if they meet the requirements which is really to uh, it's pretty simple you have to pay all your employees full-time part-time and ultimately contract employees uh a local updated living wage rate i say ultimately contracted because sometimes as with uh certain large employers there's you know, there's a, there's contracts in place for third-party employees like cleaners or security guards. Right. And so you have to wait for that contract to come up for renegotiation. Right. And then you put a living wage provision in that saying, oh, everyone that works on this premise must be making at least a living wage. But, uh, you know, very often the case, they're already there. Um, mm. Maybe they have to bring some people up, like was the case with the city of uh, Waterloo. And uh, a, a modest uh, fee is paid based on uh, your size and whether or not you're nonprofit or for profit. And uh, we sign a license agreement, which is a legal agreement between us and the employer that outlines our obligations and uh, rights. Uh, and that's, uh, that's that. Then mm-hmm. we uh, try to celebrate you as best we can as a certified employer. It's the newest one in our directory. You get issued uh, uh, pieces that you can use to identify yourself as a certified employer in the form of uh, window decals, uh, point of sale decals, uh, (laughs) badges that you can place on your website or in print
1: material. And uh, yeah, that's it. It pays to be a member. Um, But I mean, just to wrap up, you know, uh, something like the uh, the municipality, uh, city of Waterloo, where, you know, we tend to think of. You know municipal employees we think of the sunshine list and all the people on the sure. sunshine list but you know there are lifeguards and the people who cut the park grass and and yeah, absolutely all those people who are on the other end of that doing the hard work as it were <laughs>
2: yeah and you know um they're 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 kind of working for us we're yeah. their employees as, as members of the public this public sector are the places where we live are em- employing these people in our behalf and so, you know, there's there's that's just one reason of many why municipalities choose to certify. Um, you know, so it's uh leading by example. Yeah. If you if you want people you want to eliminate working poverty, uh one of the easiest things you can do to eliminate working poverty is pay a living wage.
1: That's a perfect place to end it. Uh Craig Pickthorne, thank you so much for all your time today. And thanks for the good work too. Thank you, Adam. It was a pleasure to be on.
0: And that song was number 23 on this week's CFRU Top 30 chart. The artist is Bloodshot Bill from his album Psych, Oh Billy. And the song was called Try Again. Last August, Adam spoke to Gene Hopkins, who at the time was the newly appointed manager of the guelph Wellington Drug Strategy. The WGDS is a coalition of partner agencies and members of the lived experience community who are working to implement a four-pillar drug strategy in the City of Guelph and the Municipalities of Wellington County. Their mission is to take action to prevent and respond to local substance use and addiction issues with the goal of having a Guelph-Wellington free-from-harm related to substance use. This interview first aired on August twenty-fourth, 2023.
1: Okay, Jean Hopkins, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Adam. Um, And for uh, uh, disclaimer purposes, uh, just so our audience knows, uh, you are, as we're recording this, you are finishing up your sixth day on the job as manager
3: of Wellington (laughs) Guelph's
1: drug strategy. So that's impressive uh, (laughs) to walk into this role now. Um, Let's set the tone sort of very, very broadly Um, when we're talking about the drug addiction crisis or the, the the drug poisoning crisis or or however mm-hmm. way we want to kind of phrase these things like what are we talking about in terms of like what's happening sort of every day whether that's at guelph community health center or other similar services around our region or around ontario frankly
4: mm-hmm.
3: yeah absolutely and that's that's a really great question and a really complex one um I think that it's really important to consider here that we're navigating a really different landscape with the current drug supply, um, and that's leading to drug poisoning deaths. So uh, over the past few years, we've seen an increase across Canada with with harms related to substances, uh, but in particular with opioids um and opioids are a class of drug that are typically used for pain management you've probably been prescribed opioids after you know getting a tooth taken out or whatever Um, but in recent years we've seen an increase in in deaths uh or of drug poisonings so um that might look like you know substances that are being purchased on the street they might be um inconsistent in their their strength and in their purity Um, So someone might buy something off the street that contains a high-strength opioid, like fentanyl, for example, without their knowledge, right? So um, this is quite common to see in our drug supply in our community. Um, And there is evidence, too, that fentanyl contributes to 85% of deaths due to opioid poisoning. So nationally, uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada reports that across Canada, at least 21 people die every day from drug poisoning. Um, and you know this is a really complex issue. Uh, it's also a really tragic one, um, and this is an issue that really isn't slowing down. Um, and I think you know, as a community, we need to uh, respond, and we need to you know work to develop solutions to address this. Because you know, ultimately, these aren't statistics; they're not numbers, right? They're they're people in our communities, and and they're our loved ones. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you know, we when we get the, the sort of alerts about you know drug poisonings and there's always sort of a description about like what kind of fentanyl it is and it's usually identified by color you know there's red and purple and Mm -hmm. and blue and I I think for those of us who um are not substance dependent you know there's kind of a bit of confusion there you know Mm -hmm. and you're talking about opioids you can get you can be prescribed opioids so technically they you know if you're using it And you're under a doctor's care. It's not deadly, but at some point between what you get from a doctor and what you get on the street, it becomes deadly. And I, I think there's still some confusion about how that happens
3: right yeah absolutely and so so the opioids for example that you would receive after you know a minor medical procedure for example those are regulated right uh those are regulated opioids as opposed to unregulated which is what you see on the streets and and to your point you know sometimes those health alerts will sort of describe what they are and often they look very different and often they're quite inconsistent right so um so it just speaks to the nature of that unpredictability and the toxicity of of the the drugs that you would um purchase on the street but i think you know there are some uh initiatives that are that are taking place um some harm reduction approaches uh and and programs that we have in our community too that that are addressing that um and i can speak a little bit to some of those as well but but mm-hmm. i was thinking too it might be helpful um uh to to talk a little bit about some of the language that we're currently using too that sort of yes. addresses that um you know i'll, I'll and i'll note here that some of the language is kind of shifting a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And we've been using the term drug poisoning more recently, um, and I think that is really important, right? Because language is uh, language is important, language is meaningful, uh, and because the deaths that we're seeing are largely due to the unsafe and the unpredictable drugs on the illicit market, the unregulated market, uh, and because they are the major drivers of that death of of these deaths, we want to use that language, right? So. You know, in other words, people are using drugs and they don't know what's in them, Uh, and in some cases, that's led to them being poisoned by a substance that they didn't mean to take. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're working to sort of, you know, minimize the stigma and shift the language away from overdose, which suggests that someone might have used too much of a substance, and instead use the word poisoning, which acknowledges the fact that most of these deaths that we are seeing are because of a toxic and unpredictable drug supply on the street.
1: And overdose kind of assigns blame to the user as well.
3: Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think that stigma piece is really important. So 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 you'll probably see a shift in some of the language moving forward. And that's that sort of explains what that is.
1: Right. Um, the big piece of that is people will will recognize um, we're, we're recording this on Wednesday. So tomorrow on Thursday. It is Drug Poisoning Awareness Day in Mount Forest, and that will be followed right. next Thursday with Drug Poisoning Awareness Day in downtown Guelph.
3: That's right. Yeah. Um, and I can speak a little bit to that if you'd like to. Yes. Too. Yes, please. Absolutely. Okay. So... Um, so, Drug Poisoning Awareness Day is on August 31st, um, and as I mentioned, you know we're, we're changing the language there this year, um, but this is an international event uh, that we've been holding both in Guelph and in the county, so on the, the 24th, as you mentioned, in Mount Forest, um, and, and we've been holding this event for a number of years now, uh, and the intention really is to hold space and to honour the people in Guelph and throughout Canada that um, have lost their lives due to drug poisoning. Um, and so the intention really is to, to gather and to remember and to grieve with family and friends and, and our community members. Um, but I think, you know, it's also a really important opportunity for us to draw attention to this issue, um, to, to work to minimize stigma uh, and to advocate for change as well, right? Because we know that many of these deaths are preventable um, and we need to ensure that there's you know policies and programs in place that, that are available to, to minimize harms. Um, so, please join us on the 31st. We're going to start at City Hall at 1130. Uh, we're going to walk to Royal Bank Plaza from 12 to 1. And uh, that's where we'll gather to acknowledge the, the loss of our community members due to accidental drug poisoning. Um, and everyone's invited to attend, right? Everyone is welcome. So so we hope to see you there.
1: Uh, the county part of the the Awareness Day. I think this is the second year um, we're doing that in the county, too. So is there like a difference, I guess, in terms of how drug poisoning is affecting people in the county uh, versus people here in the city? Or is it just sort of like maybe a matter of scale?
3: Yeah, that's a great great question. I think um, you know, often what we see in more um remote regions is that, you know, services are sort of spread out. They they're they're not nearly as accessible. Uh, in some cases, um there's a um uh, has a van that uh, that distributes harm reduction supplies across the county, which is which is an incredible program that many people uh rely on. Um so so you know, there's there's certainly um lots of considerations in terms of services that are available and services that are offered to, to provide support for people.
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: That's a part of this. I kind of want to uh, mine for a minute because um, there are so many different services offered through so many different service agencies. You know, Mm -hmm. there's, there's a CTS downtown. There's the Sanguine Van, as you're talking about, you know, Wyndham house has programs that, that refer people, you know, Stonehenge has peer to peer support, right. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not going to ask you six days on the job to list them all, but it it just, one of the things I think, um, I'm confronted with, and maybe a lot of people are confronted with is, um, the question, is it working, is, is like this kind of like multifaceted approach working, um, better than say, just kind of having that sort of like one type of approach. And I don't necessarily mean like taking everyone who's, you know, uh, facing an, an issue with addiction and forcing them into treatment or something sure. like that. But just, you know, there are so, kind of so many doorways. Yep. Um, I, I guess the question is, um, are, are we doing the best we can for people by offering them so much choice in terms of uh, how, how they can address their situation?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, uh, my response would be that a multifaceted, broad approach with multiple different services and multiple different options is absolutely essential, right? I think, um, you know, across the province, we've seen um, a volume, the volume of people who need support increase. Uh, I, th- I think in some cases we've seen the complexity increase, as I mentioned with the, the, the toxic drug supply, um, and people who are struggling need options and they need a broad range of options. And I think just like, you know, any other health issue, uh, people have different needs, you know, they have different goals. And as a result, we need a really wide range of supports to offer for people who are struggling. Um, you know, and I think in some cases, uh, that might include harm reduction, right? Mm-hmm. and and there's mm-hmm. many different types of harm reduction approaches or programs. Um, but overall they are all evidence-based treatments that aim to meet people where they're at um, and provide uh, comprehensive and non-judgmental uh, supports. And in some cases without necessarily requiring them to stop using substances too, right? So um, I think, again, it's really taking a look at substance use treatments as being on a broad continuum um, that addresses individual needs and individual um, uh, circumstances as well, right? And, and to ensure mm-hmm. that there's a health oriented response to to issues related to substance use and addiction.
1: And evidence base is kind of key, right? Like mm-hmm. you and, and other groups in the community, we're not experimenting with people who use substances trying to see what works.
3: Yes, absolutely. And I think that sometimes that can be a misconception with, with right. some some services as well. Um, but but certainly you know there's there's um, a wide range of services that we will always look to the evidence too, and we're always contributing as well to to the evidence base as well, right? So I'm always taking a look at what's working, what's not, and adjusting as needed. I think with many programs.
4: Yeah,
1: and along with that, um, a lot of these programs are are for like people who you know maybe recognize that they have a problem and are sort of in a position where they're like ready to try and. Understand their problem and and work through it, work past it, however you want to phrase it. Mm -hmm. For everyone else, though, you know, people who are still using, maybe they don't feel like, maybe they don't feel like they're ready. They don't feel like they deserve the help. How do we reach those people, the ones who are kind of alone in the dark, as it were?
3: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's hard to answer, you know, because every person's situation and every person's um, circumstances are 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 so different, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that um, I, I think stigma is a really significant component to all of this, right? And doing what mm. we can to, to minimize stigma. And, you know, we know that when stigma exists, that creates barriers for people to access care and access services, right? And so what does that mean for us as a community and what can we be doing? And I think that that's a really key component to um, a lot of the work that the drug strategy does as well, right, um, um, we, we, we want to minimize barriers and 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 support access for people to to seek support when they are uh, in a place where that it might feel really challenging to do so um um so you know minimizing stigma where we can right naming what's going on within our community talking about it with our friends and family members informing one another um when there might be substances that are circulating that are dangerous for example right i think you know these are all um ways in which we can minimize stigma and uh and and hopefully that has sort of ripple effects in our community and and people might be um um, might feel safer reaching out to to supports, whatever they might be and whatever might be helpful to them.
1: Mm-hmm. How, you know, in terms of people also want to see this as and even the police chief himself will will tell you that, you know, we will not arrest our way out of sure. the crisis. Mm-hmm. But, and I guess this goes into some of those misconceptions and stigma. The reaction for people is to still like if people are in, you know, harming themselves then you know there would there would be some i guess they're looking at it through a moral lens that it would be immoral mm-hmm. not to help someone who is helping themselves but is is that kind of in it, in its own way as harmful as sort of letting people harm themselves i guess i guess maybe this is this is a bit a bit of a broader question but you know we can't really just like Pull up of the sanguine van and throw somebody in the back and sure, of get treatment.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 people again need to to be in a position where they feel safe to access services, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and 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 again, what that might look like totally depends on the person, totally depends on the circumstances, and it depends on what's available within their communities as well, right? And so I think mm-hmm. just going back to our previous um. Uh, previous, previous conversation there too, I think, you know, again, ensuring that there's a really broad range of services that, um, um, that, that people can access.
1: I wonder if you, we might take a moment, uh, and, and talk about the social determinants of health. I, sure. That's, that's one of those phrases that I think we hear and maybe, uh, don't fully understand or maybe we don't realize we, we fully understand or how all this sort of like intersects housing affordability like the yes. general unaffordability um the cost of groceries and you know how someone might end up um in, in a situation where they become addicted because uh mm-hmm. everything else is so darn hard
3: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and um you know i think um i, I think I think COVID really shone a light on the importance of um, looking at it, looking at health issues from a social determinants lens. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people who were um, uh, unhoused or didn't have access to healthcare services, um, people in, you know, low income in, in certain communities and certain demographics were hit harder by COVID. Right. And I think that that's something that uh, where we learned a lot of really concrete lessons as to, you know, some of the broader impacts that can health, that can impact health and, and can impact, you know, health equity as
1: well. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that, I I guess, to, to borrow the phrase, the rise, the rising tide raises all ships or something like that, but, you know, in attacking Affordable housing, and, and granted, this is gonna this is like another one of these multifaceted approach and mm-hmm. trying to trying to do everything at once. But you know, generating more affordable housing, uh, like increasing things like the ODSP rates and the the Ontario mm-hmm. Works rates, is is that something that helps you as uh someone who's working at, uh, in the drug strategy and and helping people who are addicted, um is is that a, uh, also a practical solution outside of, you know, I guess if you have a good job and you're getting a good pay and you have an affordable place to sure. live, maybe you don't end up on drugs in the first place.
3: Sure. And, and yeah, and again, some of those links are really complex, right? It's okay. never a straight linear line with people's right. lived experiences and their circumstances. And, and, and so, you know, that's, that's, that's something that, you know, it, again, really complex. And as a result, really complex uh, solutions are needed for, for these issues. Hmm. Um you know, I, I, it's a it's a really interesting question and a really great one. Um, that you know maybe after six days on the job, uh, I might not be in the best best place because I'm doing a deep dive and learning about all of the, the complexities and in the, in the intersections myself. Right. Um, but I will say, you know, that the the drug stroll takes on a really unique role, right, where we bring forward perspectives, um, and support initiatives that fall under four pillars that I that um that are really crucial, right. So for example, mm. prevention, uh, treatment and recovery, harm reduction and community safety. And absolutely, social mm. determinants of health are are interwoven with all of those pillars, right? Um, and I think the drug strategy is a really um, uh, uh, unique, it's really unique in that it takes a coordinated approach to uh, ensure that all community players are working together, that they're learning from one another. Um, you know, and I will say that, you know, after only six days on the job, what <laughs> I have observed is that Guelph does collaboration really well, mm. um, um, and that people communicate with one another, service providers communicate with one another in a really incredible way. Um, and, you know, everybody is committed to developing innovative programs and approaches that that meets the meet the needs of all of the members of our community as it relates to substance use. And then, of course, the links to those social determinants, right? So housing, um, you know, income, uh, and so on. So I think, you know, hearing from all community members is essential in tackling these really complicated issues. But I think also as it relates to substance use, most importantly, I think collaboration with people who are most impacted by drug poisoning is so crucial. So people who use drugs, right? People mm-hmm. who, you um, uh people with lived experience people who have lost loved ones and family members right we need to hear those voices and they need to be a part of this conversation as well so again not a quick fix but uh, but collaboration is is necessary to make changes and and i think wealth does that quite well
1: mm-hmm. looking ahead a bit to you know this time next year when you've been on the job for <laughs> 371 days <laughs> um Where do you where are you hoping that we will be like in terms of like in in terms of immediate goals? Like, is there an immediate goal or is this is this more of a marathon that, you know, um, we're just going to have to 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 play it as it goes that, you you know, there's really nothing. Well, not nothing we can't do, but, you know, just in terms of like there's there's, it's not going to be like we'll see a major difference in a year or or anything like that
3: yeah yeah so you know the 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 overarching goal of the drug strategy is um to uh, reduce the health and social harms associated with substance use, right? That's big. That's complex. I think, you know, a year from now, it, we want to see um, no more deaths due to drug poisoning, right? We want to see mm. a wide range of um, uh, treatments and support and services and approaches for people who use drugs and for for um, people in our community, um um and and again working towards minimizing stigma so that we can talk about this and develop solutions collaboratively and and uh and as a team
1: mm-hmm. maybe to wrap up then um if somebody's listening maybe they need help themselves maybe someone in their life needs help um i mean obviously without knowing what exactly that looks like but it, you know if someone's stuck and they're, mm-hmm. they're trying to figure things out whether again it's for themselves or for a loved one um how how do they begin you know what's the best what's a good place to begin for for that person
3: yeah that's a, such a great question um and i think you know again i i go back to the the really fantastic uh services that we have in our community i think about you know the work that stonehenge does uh wyndham house the Guelph Community Health Center. So I would say, you know, reaching out to um, to some of our um, our fantastic uh, commu- community based organizations is a really great first place to start. Um, we also have a website, the Guelph Wellington Drug Strategy, wgdrugstrategy.ca. Uh, and I, I welcome everyone to take a look and to you know inform yourself and see see what's out there. Um, see what community partners might best meet your needs or the needs of your loved one. Um, And, you know, that's, that there's, there's such a wide range of options currently Um, but still so much more work to be done here.
1: Mm -hmm. And I take it if, if someone were to reach out to let's say you or somebody at CHC and if you don't have a program that can specifically help them. You can refer people to other programs where they might get the absolutely. help they need. Yeah, yeah.
3: absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to make sure, you know, it it there's no bad place to ask for help.
3: Of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think that's that's a really great point for sure. All
1: right. Well, Gene Hopkins, thank you so much for uh, taking some time out of day six. Good luck on day seven. <laughs> thank you
3: so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we hope to see you at um, at the Drug Poisoning Awareness event on the 31st.
1: All right. Well, thank you for your time today. Okay. Take care. Okay. Once again, that was Gene Hopkins. Uh, Drug Poisoning Awareness Day is next Thursday. So August 31st. Uh, in the meantime, if you or someone you know uh, are having problems with substances if you're in crisis and you need support or know someone who does i'll I'll give you this phone number 1844 here 247 1844 437 3247 that will connect you 24 hours a day 7 days a week to uh someone who can refer to you or who can refer you to one of 11 different agencies across Waterloo region or Wellington mm-hmm. county that can help you So uh, if you do feel like you are in need and or if someone you know is in need, call that number 1-844-HERE-247.
0: That's all for this week. Open Sources is heard here on CFRU 93.3 FM every Thursday at 5 p.m. We're also available online in most podcast formats. For more information on the show, visit opensourcesguelph.com. Thanks once again for joining us. Until next time. I'm Scotty Hertz, and for Adam A. Donaldson, Slanja.
4: Cats are always
0: watching,
4: see the ghosts fly between the factories and the cemeteries. Using our cell phones as flashlights. We're telling stories about our grandfathers. Oh, they used to play in bands in the bars. Stealing cars just to raise them. They live their lives in different times. But we can still remember their voices. The sun will bring us back to life. The way it shines through the black gates of iron. I think it's time to. But each other and our dead cell phones I'm gonna call in sick to work We can watch a couple of movies The sounds of cars.